Welcome back to Out of the Box, hosted by Jonathan Russo. We're continuing our series through the Marxist lens with Professor Clyde Barrow. In previous episodes, we explored the topics of economic inequality, democracy, and infrastructure. So we've ragged on capitalism's faults. Now it would be interesting to hear Marx's view on Russia's version of his theories. Sort of a who done it? When did it go wrong? Who was responsible? Why did it go wrong? I think anyone interested in history finds the Russian Revolution of 1917 utterly fascinating. Professor Barrow, please give us a primer on that revolution and what might have been Marx's reaction. Well, that's a very complicated and controversial question. So today I think we're going to do a little bit of political theory and a little bit of history. Sounds uh, good. In order to, to explain those events. I think the first place to start uh, would be, you know, what, what would Marx say or what would Marx have thought in his own time? Certainly, and that was expressed by many of the, the large socialist parties in Western Europe and the United States in the early 20th century. I think Marx's view on socialist revolution was that he essentially had a, a theory of revolution, which was that capitalism was a very dynamic economic system which would build the wealth and build the economic base that would make these sort of massive socialist redistributive policies possible. And that it would also be the training ground for the working class in terms of learning self-governance and democracy. And to give you an example, most of the socialist parties and labor unions at the turn of the 20th century did a lot more than just campaign for votes or go out and, you know, engage in collective bargaining for higher wages. They were designed to prefigure what a socialist society would look like. So they were engaged in economic activities, in cultural and entertainment activities. You know, in the United States, there were, were just a plethora of uh, worker schools, trade union schools uh, that were run by trade unions or run by the socialists and the communist party in the United States where people learned everything from political theory to history, only it was labor history, not you know elite history. Uh, they learned everything from accounting, financial management, so that you had these sort of alternative system of education in place to train people to be capable of managing a political system and an economic system. Professor Barrett, that sounds very interestingly utopian. Wasn't that around the same time that the utopians were doing this in the late 19th century? Uh, they had agricultural schools, they had trade schools, they were trying to create a better society. Was that parallel or in opposition to socialist education? No, this really came after the utopian movement in uh -huh. the late 19th century. It was Did they steal from the utopians or borrow from the utopians? The Marxists wouldn't have so much. I mean, they they embraced the notion of of the of uh, of cooperative ownership and cooperative management of industry, but that's pretty much all they would have borrowed from them. Their view was you didn't lay out a blueprint of society; you let it sort of emerge, and I'll I'll get into that in just a minute. But there were even things you'll see remnants of these up in the Northeast. They had workers' banks and mechanics' cooperative banks where the workers would essentially pool their money into what today we would call a credit union to provide themselves with insurance, with low interest loans, to buy houses, to buy home, you know, everything like that. So the idea is that the socialist and the trade union movement were literally building socialism from within the womb of capitalism. Wow. And the idea would be that when capitalism eventually collapses, this new society would effectively already be there. And so the bottom line here is that Marx viewed socialism 
as something that would happen first and primarily in Germany, France, Sweden, the Netherlands, England, even the United States. He never viewed Russia uh, as, as the place where socialism might actually begin. Now, that enters Lenin. Part of the reason for that is because most of the socialists viewed Russia as sort of a backward, semi-feudal country. Uh, it had an authoritarian, autocratic tradition. They, they had a very small urban working class, really only concentrated in a couple of large cities. They just didn't see it as a place where a socialist revolution would erupt. Uh, but Lenin actually challenged that very huh. early in his career. He wrote a very famous book called The Development of Capitalism in Russia. And what was unique about that book is he said, you can't think of capitalism in terms of discrete individual nation states like Germany or France. Capitalism is a global economic network, and Russia has been integrated into those capitalist markets primarily through its agricultural sector. And at the time, the Ukraine was literally the breadbasket of right. Europe. So his argument was, Russia may be an underdeveloped capitalist country, but it is a capitalist country. And that led him to what he called the theory of the weakest link. He said, if you view capitalism as sort of a chain of interlinked economies and nation states, he says, when you pull on a chain, where does it break? It breaks at its weakest link, not at its strongest link. And so he proposed the idea that Russia was the place where a socialist revolution would come because not only was its working class weak, its capitalist class was equally weak and it was a decrepit autocratic state. And so his argument was, we can have a socialist revolution that, in Russia. That sounds really interestingly like Donald Trump's uh, famous, what do you have to lose comment where you know he went to the black community and actually made that statement. You're saying basically that Lenin said in a sense, like, what does anybody in Russia have to lose? It's so corrupt, it's so decrepit, it's so uh, evil in its treatment of the, the serfs, the peasants, and, and uh, why, why wouldn't you have a revolution there? There was like nothing to lose. Well, exactly, and you did have a revolution there. Uh, kind of the preview to it came in 1905, but yes. I'll go right to 1917, which was, was the big one. Uh, and I think it's important to remember that the, the 1917 revolution, there were really two of them. There was what was called the February Revolution and the October Revolution. The February Revolution is often referred to as the bourgeois revolution. Uh, this was just a spontaneous outbreak. It wasn't planned by any political party or any movement. And it actually began with uh, tens of thousands of women going into the street to protest for bread. People were starving to death. And yeah. of course, at the same time, here's Russia spending its, its treasury fighting Germany in World War One. Well, what happened is that these bread protests sparked a massive general strike across the city of Petrograd, the capital of Russia at the time, as workers went out on strike and said, well, you know what, if you would pay us enough, our wives wouldn't have to be out in the streets protesting for bread. And they actually shut down the factories, directly seized control of the means of production, sort of just as they had done in the Paris Commune of 1871, which Marx looked upon very favorably. And that then set off that the army barracks in Petrograd mutinied. Most of these soldiers were working class or of working class origins. They declared themselves 
as servants of the people, not servants of the czar. And so essentially you had the entire city of Petrograd shut down. The army had turned against the czar. And at the advice of his generals, the czar abdicated. Now, the problem was you end up with a system that eventually was known as dual power. What happened is that, that the workers and the soldiers organized themselves into to what were called Soviets. The English word would be councils. And essentially every factory would have a council. They would then elect delegates to the St. Petersburg Soviet of, of workers and soldiers. And they declare themselves the legitimate sovereign government of Russia now that the czar has abdicated. And in fact, at least in Petrograd, they control the army and the loyalty of the army and the loyalty of the majority of the people. On the other hand, what was the old sort of Duma, basically the Russian parliament, uh, such as it was, self-appointed a provisional government. It had no support. It had no legitimacy. It consisted primarily of, of wealthy businessmen and lawyers, members of the upper middle class. Uh, so it was called the bourgeois government. They claimed to be the legitimate government, but they really had only the support of the bureaucracy. So what happens? Well, the provisional government initiates a number of, of bourgeois liberal reforms. They, they guarantee we're going to have elections and write a constitution and we'll have a constitutional republic somewhere out in the future, at least in a few months. We're going to extend basic civil liberties and civil rights. They abolish the death penalty. They release political prisoners. They did a lot of good things uh, that improved the political conditions in Russia, but they didn't address the three things that most concerned the Russian population. And that was what Lenin later referred to as peace, bread, and land. The soldiers wanted World War I to end. They wanted to pull Russia out of World War I because it was mainly working class people being sent to die on the front, many a times without even guns. Yeah. They couldn't even afford to arm the troops, but they were going out there and getting shot. People were hungry. They wanted to eat. And the landless peasants in the countryside wanted land, right? Uh, and Lenin shows up in April and promises them that. And he begins to galvanize this sort of Bolshevik movement in the Communist Party that largely controlled the Soviet, at least in Petrograd. But it's important to remember, at the same time, it's estimated that about 700 Soviets emerged across Russia and just sort of spontaneously spread like a prairie fire that encompassed about a third of the Russian population at that time. So you basically then have this standoff between the Soviet and Petrograd and the provisional government, basically with the administration on one side, sovereign legislative authority on the other, and it's in October under the leadership of Lenin and Trotsky that the Soviet leaders, simply the communist, the Bolshevik leaders in particular, finally decide we've had enough of this. They sent Trotsky to the Winter Palace with some soldiers. They stormed the Winter Palace. They took the royal family hostage. They dissolved the provisional government and declared the Soviet to be the only legitimate form of government in Russia. Now, what went wrong? You know, there are a lot of historians who have debated this topic, and I'll just sort of give you my rough version of this. Please. One of which is that while we can sort of estimate that probably the communists had the support of about, you know, one third of the Russian population, that means they didn't have the support of about two thirds of the population. 
And there were many very prominent socialists and even communists in Western Europe, particularly people like Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Kotsky, two of the foremost Marxist political theorists at the time, who had a falling out with Lenin. Kotsky said, this is not the road to go. What you've pursued is an, a fundamentally anti-democratic political strategy. You've had your revolution. You need to institute a constitutional republic. You need to build the economic foundations of socialism. And that may take you decades, if not a few hundred years. Well, the Bolsheviks weren't patient enough for that. All right. They say, we're going to do it now. We're going to telescope the revolution. And of course, Rosa Luxemburg as well was that this is just fundamentally anti-democratic. She said, you can't build a worker state through authoritarian means. Uh, but Russia had never had any history of democracy. So in a sense, when Lenin and the Soviets took power, they were just replacing the czar in the minds of the average Russian. I mean, the Russians never went to the polls. There wasn't ever a free press. There was no democratic institutions in Russia. So where would Rosa Luxemburg and the Western European socialists think that all of a sudden this, you know, quote, democracy would flower or come from? Well, and the answer to that was there's never been democracy in any country until there's been democracy. Nobody had, <laughs> you know, a training session for this. <laughs> you learn it as you go. And so what the Western Marxists were arguing to Lenin is you need to build this cultural and political capacity within Russia for self-governance, and that's going to take a long time. And the, the reality, of course, is Russia became, over the next two or three decades, a fairly totalitarian state. But before we get there, yeah. uh, there were some other intervening events. Once the Bolsheviks took power and declared you know, a Soviet state, you know, there were a lot of things working against them. Number one of which is the very prosperous peasants in the countryside did not support socialism. They were property owners. The, land, the kulaks? Yes, the kulaks. The top army officers did not support it. And much of the army on the front was not loyal to the Bolsheviks. So it initiates a civil war yeah. within Russia, the so-called whites against the reds, and they immediately find themselves under siege. And so they're having to basically mobilize for what Lenin called war communism, a concept that had never been heard of before. Let's also not forget that when Lenin pulled Russia out of World War I, Great Britain and the United States invaded Russia. It wasn't a huge force, but they did drop some troops in up north to sort of create a second front against the Bolsheviks to try to reinforce and support the white armies. So they were really under siege, and that civil war obviously resulted in a number, well, in millions of deaths. Yeah. Uh, it resulted in the creation of the Cheka, which was the secret police, because the Bolsheviks saw enemies everywhere, rightly or wrongly. Of course, the Cheka became the KGB. And, you know, essentially you start seeing more and more authoritarian structures implemented in Russia in order to sort of wage this civil war and this foreign war. They effectively succeed in that, but not until about 1921. And at that point, we really don't know exactly what would have happened. There's endless debates about this uh, in two respects. Just before his death, Lenin instituted what he called the New Economic Policy, which was looked upon very favorably by Western Marxists and socialists, where he began to reintroduce some private ownership, really was moving Russia back toward what we would today call a mixed economy, 
rather than a command economy, reintroducing markets, allowing a fair degree of private ownership alongside of state ownership, creating cooperatives in the agricultural sector after having seized the land of the old aristocracy and redistributed. Don't, 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 all, social, don't all socialist or communist countries go through this? I mean, didn't we see this in Cuba? Didn't we see this in Eastern Europe when they tried to liberalize? You know, when the living standards fall so low that the common person doesn't think that he has anything to gain anymore, don't the leadership see this and panic and create these sort of free market enterprise solutions? There has been a great deal of that. I think in Russia, in this case, it was sort of Lenin reassessing his strategy and thinking that, you know, we really do need to back off here and, and go through a phase of a mixed economy and sort of build our economy and build our institutions. The problem, of course, is he died. Right. And, you know, there's this famous thing called the last will and testament of Lenin, where he basically said, you know, I have a lot of suspicions about Trotsky, but he's a lot better than Stalin. Yeah. And he said, I plead with you, do not let Stalin take control of the revolution or of the Communist Party, or it will be terrible, right? And of course, Stalin won the day because he controlled the party apparatus. Trotsky was eventually exiled by the late 20s. And we all know the story of, you know, Stalin spent most of the rest of the 1920s and the 1930s building a totalitarian state and consolidating power, killing enemies, staging show trials, and a whole range of things. One of the, the things he did, however, that resulted in millions of deaths. He brought most of the agricultural sector under state ownership through these massive industrial state farms, and he squeezed the peasantry very hard to generate profits to reinvest in industrial infrastructure and industrial facilities, because his view was Russia needed to industrialize as rapidly as possible and create what he called socialism in one country, which was an idea Marx would have scoffed at because Marx saw socialism as an international movement. He didn't see it as something you could just do in one country. Did did Marx, in his theory of the dictatorship of the proletariat, didn't he foresee that brutal people or power-hungry people could just bypass, quote, this dictatorship and the proletariat and create just a dictatorship? I mean, it just seems that wherever you have communism, it it just seems that somehow it lends itself immediately to authoritarianism and fascism. Marx only used the term dictatorship of the proletariat twice. Entire 50 volume collection that. And why, why, why is it the, the ring, the, the ringtone almost of uh, when I think of communism, I think of that, that phrase? Well, that's because that's the one that gets put out there. But remember, <laughs> if you read his usage of it in the Communist Manifesto, one of the few times he uses it, it's very clear that what he means by the dictatorship of the proletariat is political democracy. And you would ask yourself, well, how could those two things be welded together in his mind? And it was this. If you have a political democracy and the working class is clearly the majority of society and it's organized and votes its class interests, it will always be the majority. Right. It will effectively be the class rule of the working class, a, quote, dictatorship of the proletariat. Mm. So. He very clearly meant that term to mean something than our understanding of the word dictatorship as we employ it today. He was really equating it with the establishment of a working class majority 
in a democratic form of government. He did not mean it to be a dictatorship over the proletariat, which is how it ended up getting implemented in the context of Russia. And I think that raises another really good question. And this is why people like Kotsky and Luxembourg would have been so critical of Lenin on this point. You know, one of Lenin's most famous books is called What is to be Done? Right. And it's a book in which he calls for the organization of a highly centralized, secretive, conspiratorial political party that is disciplined and capable of engaging in political action in a context of authoritarian Tsarist rule, where they are by their very existence illegal. So what he did was create a party organization designed to sort of counter an authoritarian government and overthrow it, he didn't create a party organization designed to facilitate and promote democratic self-governance. Now, many would disagree with me on that, but that would be my argument. And that's why Kotsky would have said, you can't create a dictatorial form of party organization and then expect it to immediately transmute into a democracy at the point of revolution. Whatever you go into the revolution with is what you're gonna end up with. And that's why especially the German Marxists were very critical of Lenin and his basic theses of party organization in that book. And of course, that's exactly what they got. Well, when the transfer of power happened to Stalin and Trotsky was sidelined and of course later assassinated, was Stalin really just carrying on in a communist method or was he really a Marxist or was he just an authoritarian? I mean, when we all now think of Stalin, it, it just looked like he really didn't care about ideology. He just cared about concentrating power and, yes, preserving Russia. For sure, he was a nationalist and everything he did was an attempt to bolster Russia so that it wouldn't be a weak state any longer. And I certainly you know, get that. But was he a communist or was he just a authoritarian? Lenin viewed him as simply a bureaucratic opportunist. He was just a guy who was in it for the power. He saw the Communist Party as the road to power, and he rode that to power. Lenin had absolutely nothing good to say about Stalin. Now, at the same time, however, one could say Stalin built off the party apparatus and the party structures that had been put in place by Lenin. So, you know, there's a little culpability there in terms of the tools effectively that somebody like Stalin had to work with and then just built on going into the next decade. Right. So take us through the mistakes that Stalin created that, that ultimately led basically to the collapse. I mean, if you really do look at it, you know, the collapse of communism in Russia and the mistakes they made started off with Stalin's authoritarianism, which became an unrelentless gray misery for almost everybody. And it ended up, you know, with an economy, a fraction of the size of the, the West and, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the disintegration of the Soviet Union was because of its economic and political weakness. What were the seeds that the mistakes or the road that he didn't take that Marx would have said, you took the wrong road here? Yeah. Well, if we're going to look at it, I think through the lens of, of Marx, Marx himself, uh, I think the biggest early mistake was the state collectivization of agriculture, which mm -hmm. just utterly collapsed the agricultural sector. And even up through the final years of the Soviet Union, they still had cooperatively owned farms. And it was always the case that the cooperatives produced a much greater share of agriculture and were more productive than the state farms. And that's because on the state farms, you were just an employee 
on the cooperative farms, you are actually a, a share owner and therefore a direct beneficiary of increased productivity. And the idea there was that you would consolidate lots of small parcels of land so that you could farm them on an industrial scale, but they were still collectively owned by the cooperative. So right. I think it should have gone more in the cooperative sector, which, by the way, is what Nikolai Bukharin had proposed was that, you know, we're an agricultural society. Let's build socialism in the agricultural sector and forget this trying to emulate the United States and Germany. Occurs Nikolai Bukharin ends up on a show trial uh, and ends up dead for making that argument. Professor, there are all these books, I'm sure you're very familiar with them, that you know, speculate like what would happen if like the South won the Civil War or what would happen if Hitler had you know, won World War II? I'm going to ask you to have some fun with this. What would have happened if Trotsky had, had, had replaced Lenin and not Stalin? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. The Trotskyists are not going to like me for saying this, but I don't think they're it not that many. I don't think I'd worry. <laughs> I don't think it would have been that much different because Ooh. in terms of their economic policy, so far as I know, uh, Trotsky was very much committed to the same kinds of policies. I may be wrong and somebody may correct me on this, but I don't think it would have been much different, really. Really? Oh, wow. I always thought that because Stalin was such a you know brutal peasant from the steppes of Georgia, he was a hardened man. And I always imagined that he was just like completely different than this urbane and you know Jewish intellectual that Trotsky would have been, you know, thrown open the palace to, uh, you know, the, the aristocracy of the world or something. That's a really interesting comment. Great. Thank you so much, Professor Barrow, as always. Okay. You're welcome. This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated. All rights reserved.